I was extremely shocked and surprised to see how many people did not understand the concept, how many people did not think that there was a difference between what I had done and what happened to me. They were saying, you know, you just did to yourself what other people did to you. And I think that comment is just so incredibly revealing because it shows that to a lot of people, naked women's consent just does not matter. Whether a woman is naked publicly by choice or by violence, it means the same thing. And when those comments started kicking in, it actually cemented to me how important the activism was, maybe even more important than I could have understood. You're listening to Meaningful a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Bourne, and this season I'm sharing with you eight stories of inspiring young people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives. This week, I'm speaking with Emma Holton. Like most of the guests on my podcast, Emma wears many hats. She's a feminist activist most well-known for her work around revenge porn and non-consensual pornography, a writer currently working on a book about activism for young people, and an editor at the Danish feminist publication Friction, which she also co-founded. Emma's work is arresting. Her insights on some of the most pressing social challenges related to gender and sexuality are profound and thought-provoking, and all the more powerful when you consider that her own experience as a revenge porn survivor informs everything that she does as an activist. In the fall of 2011, when I had been at uni for about a month or so, um, I woke up and couldn't uh, get into my email one day. And I didn't know why. And I thought, you know, I probably forgot my password or something. (laughs) And when I regained entry into it, there were these hundreds of messages from strangers who in varying ways told me, that a person had hacked or gained entry into my email in some way and taken pictures from me that I had sent to a boyfriend a couple of years before and uploaded it to the internet along with basically every identifying information short of my social security number, um, address, phone number, names of my parents, my siblings, where I lived, where I worked, where I studied, everything about me. They, they it's just, It just basically said, ruin this bitch's life. And I don't know who did it. And I don't think I will ever know who did this to me. But that's, you know, the the story of what happened to me. And the, the crazy thing is that it's a pretty simple story. You know, someone took something from me that didn't belong to them and publicized it without asking me first. But of course, it's not so simple at all, because what happens afterwards is just what was surprising and what is the true violence is of course all the people afterwards who continue to be a part of this crime and perpetuate this crime. I was extremely surprised at the amount of hatred and violence that came with experiencing this and the just staggering disrespect and hatred of women that became apparent in my inbox suddenly. And I was scared, I think, to know that so many people could knowingly seek out pictures of a person and be somehow aroused by it, but then also hate the person. It was terrifying. Um, And also terrifying to see that these were, you know, regular people people with kids, people with jobs, people with a regular life who when night fell that this is what they did. That experience of being disrespected and humanized by strangers is what informs my my thinking to this day. Where do you think that 
the weird hatred that people experience seeing your photographs and knowing that this happened to you. Um, where do you think that comes from? The mistreatment, the the need to write to you and to express how they feel about you? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a big question. If I had, if only I had the answer. But I think there's a lot of things to it. I've gone through different stages of how I should relate to the people who treat me so badly and it goes up and down let's put it like that but I, st I think I started out being completely incredulous as to where this came from and then I became very angry with them and just like I think also entered some sort of mode of survival thinking you know all these people are fucking idiots um But then, you know, I think I also, in a way, feel very sorry for these people. I think it's very apparent that if you do not consider women to be human, um, if you do not consider their feelings to be important, if you do not consider their rights to be important, you're denying yourself 50% of the world, basically. <laughs> um, and I do think that especially revenge porn and non-consensual pornography, a lot of it has to do with the sense of entitlement. There is this feeling that if you have seen a woman naked, you have a right to her, and you have a right to her body, and you have a right to do basically whatever you please with her. And that drives a lot of this. But I also think that when a naked picture is taken or a movie is made or whatever that is not made for public consumption and not made for profit but made for private enjoyment it also says to us that women have a sexuality it shows us that women dare to enjoy their bodies and their lives in private and not do it for other people but for the person that they love or themselves and i think to be honest that for a lot of people that is still the most provocative thing they can deal with porn stars they can deal with women who are naked on instagram but what they can't deal with is women who do not desire to be consumed publicly but women who are sexual and in control of that sexuality in private and who do not wish to be looked at by strangers because those women are dangerous right those are the women who you know they don't care about strange men's approval they're not interested in it and i'm not and there's something threatening about it about women's sexuality for their own enjoyment what was your initial reaction when you realized what was happening I think the difficult thing about this is you don't really know what's happened. You don't understand the extent of it. I think my first reaction was a sense of a loss of control. More than, you know, sexual shame, I felt the feeling that you can feel if someone has broken into your house or someone has stolen something from you that you've been violated. And I just felt a complete loss of very, very basic human rights. You know, the right to decide what happens with you and what happens with your body and And that disrespect was kind of the first thing I felt, but it took me a long while to just grasp the extent of being a victim of this, what it actually means. I think I thought that, you know, oh, this will be pretty painful for two weeks or so. I won't be talking about this in seven years, but, but here we are. And I suddenly understood that this is not a crime between two people. This is a crime between one person and thousands of people. So it was a long string of of realizations um i just did not think that it was this extensive how did you cope can you talk about the process of understanding and of dealing with that that level of violation of privacy 
I think uh, there are different stages. I have to say, to be honest with you, I was just not coping very well. This, of course, many years ago now. Um, but I was not coping well at all for the first two or three years. I was just basically partying a lot and engaging in a lot of destructive behavior and feeling incredibly powerless and feeling, you know, okay, so this was it. This was my life. This is how it ends. This is all I'm ever going to talk about. Because that's the thing you feel is that how will you top this? Like, what kind of education is there that makes people forget this? You're, you're in a constant state of paranoia where you, you know, what do you do on the first date? When do you tell people? Do you tell them on the first date? Do you wait for themselves to find out? Um, what do you do if a person comes up to you at a party? You know, do you tell them this has happened or do you wait till they confront you? Or do you even trust that they're there to talk about you? Do you trust that they're not there to ridicule you? There's a con you're constantly alert because you feel like your entire identity has been taken from you, which is which it has. <laughs> um, and I think that I I dealt not very well with it. I I was not that old. <laughs> I was just sad. I was just incredibly depressed and felt really there there was no way out. I think what really made a difference for me was when I started to think about this politically and. When I started to get get into feminism, that really made a big difference for me. And still to this day, when people who are victims of, you know, sexual harassment or sexual violence or discrimination tell me, you know, ask me, you know, what should I do? I always tell them to get political about it. I really honestly do think that that is the best way to remove the focus from yourself. Otherwise, you can spend your life asking yourself, you know, why did this happen to me of all people? <laughs> Um, why do I deserve this? Did I do something? Does this have to do with my personality, with my choices? But as soon as you start politicizing your suffering, you see that there's more to it than that and that it really has very little to do with you as a person. As soon as you start seeing the structures around your suffering, you can start talking about it because it stops being personal. And that was really when things started shifting for me and I started feeling better and I started feeling more powerful in the face of this was when I started to have the vocabulary to describe that I was a victim of sexism and misogyny. And once I started seeing that, everything changed. Over the years that followed the posting of her naked photographs online, Emma had become increasingly frustrated with the way the public discourse on the subjects of revenge porn was unfolding. On the one hand, the women sharing intimate photos online, rather than those stealing and posting those photos without their consent, were being blamed for the consequences of their actions, for endangering themselves. On the other hand, Emma noticed that experiences of women like her were used to caution young women to be afraid and to mistrust young men, a rhetoric that she finds highly dangerous and damaging. Emma also realized that people completely misunderstood that what happened to her was so painful not because people got to see her naked, but because they got to see her naked without her having any say in it. That the problem was the lack of consent, not nudity. Out of these frustrations, the idea of the consent project was born. Emma partnered with the Danish photographer Cecily Budka, and within a week they had prepared a series of 10 photographs in which Emma featured in her home in Copenhagen, wearing the same clothes that she did in her stolen photos. The photographs were accompanied by a moving written piece on the dangers of sexualization of non-consent, authored by Emma herself. We wanted it to be pictures of a woman in the way that she sees herself um, and not the way that she's seen by others. Um, we wanted to explore whether it was even possible to take a picture of a naked woman and not have it be about sex. That was very important to us. 
So the consent project was launched on September 1st, 2014. Um, coincidentally, completely coincidentally, the day after the big violation of a lot of Hollywood stars, Jennifer Lawrence among them, who were victims of non-consensual pornography. That was the day before we did our project, but we, of course, couldn't have known that. And what happened after? What was the reaction? It was crazy. Um, it took about two hours before I had the first newspaper on the phone calling me for an interview. And I was very, um, I really didn't want to talk to journalists. So I didn't for the first three months. I didn't talk to any journalists at all. Mm, why not? Because I felt I'd said what I wanted to say. And I, and I felt that I had chosen to do the Consent Project in Friction, which was the magazine that I am an editor of and that I helped start myself. And that was a very conscious choice. Um, I didn't want my story to be hijacked by them. And I think the questions that the journalists were asking me were very much all about, you know, my personal feelings and my personal experience and, you know, my pain and my suffering. And I really didn't want to talk about that all that much. I felt that I wanted to talk about, you know, the political implications and what this meant. And they wanted this personal sob story and I didn't want to give it to them because I didn't really think that it's relevant. It was that net relevant. And then in January of 2015, a couple of months later, I was contacted by The Guardian and I said yes to that. And from then on, I just realized that, okay, if I want this issue to come in focus, I'm going to have to give them a little bit of myself. What has been the biggest learning point from doing the consent project and from the feedback that you got? I think it's also been, a, been, you know, it has stages, but I think from in the very beginning, I was extremely shocked and surprised to see how many people did not understand the concept, how many people did not think that there was a difference between what I had done and what had happened to me. They were saying, you know, you just did to yourself what other people did to you. And I think that comment is just so incredibly revealing because it shows that to a lot of people, naked women's consent just does not matter. That whether a woman is naked publicly by choice or by violence, it means the same thing. And when those comments started kicking in and people, you know, were saying, you know, you know what they say, how stupid I was and I was ruining my own life, which maybe I am, who knows at this point, but <laughs> um it actually cemented to me how important the activism was, maybe even more important that I could have understood. Because if you don't think that consent plays a central role in what material means and how we understand it, then we seem to have a problem here. The Consent Project clearly demonstrates that Emma's strength as an activist lies in her ability to exist at the intersection of art and politics, to capture the public's attention with a brave artistic act and spark a discussion about the important social issues in the process. This talent is not an accident, though. It is informed by Emma's early interest in politics and her childhood in a family of artists. I grew up in inner-city Copenhagen with two parents who are both working in the arts. My dad writes classical music and my mother works in theater. So I grew up in a very laissez-faire creative household in both good ways and bad ways. I think I had pretty absent parents that let me do pretty much whatever I wanted. Um, and for a lot of people, that's bad. But for me, I think it worked out pretty well. Um, I think you have to ask the people around me if that worked out well. 
I thought for a long time that I wanted to work with politics, that, you know, that I should, you know, study political science or something like that. But then when I was, I think, 16 or 17, I started really reading and reading a lot. And suddenly I realized that I was a little more interested in, in art than I had thought. And I started, I decided to start reading comparative literature at the university. And I was, I'm incredibly glad that I did. To me, political science and sociology is very descriptive. It's very much about, you know, looking at how is how does society work now? What what do we do? How do we do the things we do? Why do we do it? Whereas I found that in art there was also a lot of dreaming about how can it be different? How could we build something other? How what does it mean to be human on a more personal level? And I think that there was some resignation in political science and sociology that didn't really appeal to me. It was too descriptive. I, I wanted to dream a little as well. And I wanted beauty, I think, as well. I want things to be funny, too, and beautiful and disturbing and weird. Taking art seriously as a way to transform the world, I think it's hugely important. Um, and, and it has been very important to me. And it's just, it's not a coincidence that that when I did my activism, photography and text together was was the form that I, that I, that I chose because I wanted it to feel, you know, like, like an art project as, as an installation and not only, you know, a text, but, but something that talked to you on both a visual and, and, and a brain level. How did studying literature in university affect you? Did it change you in any way as a person? It really did. I think, obviously, this can't really be um, removed from my experience with revenge porn because I was a victim of revenge porn a month after I started university. Um, and when that happened, I, don't, I didn't know that now, but I, I think I am even more happier with my choice because I got to spend time with a way of working with art that has to do also with the things that are sad in life and things that are difficult and reading about and understanding other people's pain and suffering, which became extremely important to me because I was suffering so much myself. And I think literature really helped me in understanding suffering and pain as something that can learn us something. I think there is a tendency to, especially in a lot of the current political movements we see in society, to internalize pain and to put blame on the individual for their pain and say that it's their responsibility to stop their own pain. Whereas literature says, you know, pain can come from things outside of yourself and pain can come from injustice. And one person's pain is, is irrelevant to other people. It matters. And I think that even though, you know, the old adage, the person that is political is very much a feminist one. It's also an, an the artist's one, right? That the personal experience has has a grander relevance in understanding understanding our world. And I think that was incredibly important to me at that point, also in developing my activism. I probably think that if I had studied pol political science, I, I don't think I would have been the activist that I am today. Literature was so important to me. Also, you know, on a more basic survival level as escapism, <laughs> Um, I think when you're suffering, you really need to inhabit other bodies and other lives sometimes to, you know, get out from it. And, and literature, literature really served that purpose for me in those years.
took Emma several years to realize that her experience had to be understood within a larger context of objectification and disrespect for women that is inherent to our society today. It was a gradual process of self-education and reflection. The one book Emma credits especially in helping her along the journey is The Dream Faculty, a fictional biography of the radical American feminist Valerie Solanas, written by the Swedish author Sarah Stridsberg. That book was kind of the first book I read where feminism was just a word that meant uh, not that you hated men or that you were annoying, but that meant that you were powerful and that meant that you thought that the world wasn't functioning well. And I gotta say, you know, this was new to me. It's incredible what's happened in these years since, you know, this was probably two 2012 or 13. Feminism was just not something that young people talked about back then. Beyonce was not standing in front of a big sign saying feminism and it was just not on the agenda. Me Too was, you know, ages away. Um, and that was so, so important to me. I think there is a tendency to when you feel unjustly treated or when you feel pain or sadness, you know, people tell you to start doing yoga or read a self-help book or you know go to coaching do some self-care or whatever you know even in feminist circles we're all about you know put on some makeup make yourself happy um and i and i and what i thought was so incredibly powerful about solana's was that she just found strength in her anger she was like if i'm feeling angry all the time if i feel unjustly treated by people all the time there's something wrong And it's not me. That's the problem. There's not anything wrong with me. There's something wrong with them. And I think for a person like me, that was very important at that time to, you know, have that like really brazen feeling that, you know, I'm not the problem here. That was very radical for me at that time because I also felt it was a big part of my suffering that I felt that I felt ashamed that I wasn't able to be happy because I thought I'm I'm this, you know, white woman in the Western world. Why am I not happy? Why can't I just be above this? Why can't I be strong and better? And I realized that feeling pain when other people are mistreating you is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humanity. And being mistreated by other people is not natural. It's not how it's supposed to be. It's political. And what defines the political is that it's something we can change. It's something we can talk about. So making your pain political is saying that your pain is unnecessary. It's saying that your pain could be changed and that it comes from things outside of yourself that you can criticize. Not being afraid of pain and talking about pain and unhappiness is still one of the most important things for me in my work, making room for that unhappiness and that pain and saying, you know, if you feel pain, maybe there's a reason. Since the Consent Project, Emma has been involved in many other initiatives. She scripted a short film on sexual rights for the Y Foundation that was narrated by Helen Mirren, spoke at many conferences, including a TEDx event, and has been profiled by multiple national and international media outlets. But when I asked Emma about her favorite project, she focused on something very different. I think it's odd because I've done all these things that kind of sound very prestige, you know, the Helen Mirren clip, and I've spoken at the UN and and these types of things. But I think, to be honest, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that in 2013, I was part of founding Friction, which is was one of the first intersectional feminist magazines in Denmark, and the fact that we still exist... <laughs> Um, has just taken so much work, uh, so much behind-the-scenes work. And I think that is so often 
forgotten in, in feminist movements, all of the, the legwork, all of the editing text and making the homepage and answering emails and making sure, you know, there's dinner for everyone at the meeting. Um, stuff like that is all the invisible activist work that makes a movement, you know, go around. And I think the work that I'm the most proud of is that I have been part of a platform that has elevated feminist voices in Denmark in a way that was very, very rare before. And then most of my work these past two or three years have been speaking about feminism and online sexual violations at high schools and to kids. And that has also been extremely, extremely important to me to get out and talk to young people and meet other victims and also, you know, meet people who violate others and get to talk to people who are not, you know, influential or famous, but just regular young kids who are living with these types of things. That has been an incredible privilege and so important to me. And that's also the activism I feel really matters is when you're out there at some high school in the middle of nowhere talking to them and, and giving them these views of things and this analysis i've it's been an incredibly it's been so hard but very very rewarding what does being an activist mean to you what i have realized and what has been my big learning experience from working as an activist is that doing political work is work it is work in every sort of way it is so hard and you need to take time off I think actually it's kind of a misnomer that we say that you can be a feminist because no one can be a feminist all the time. That's impossible. <laughs> you would die from exhaustion after 22 hours. Like It's completely impossible. So I think the way I think about it is that being a feminist is doing something feminist. It's saying, okay, now I will do something political. I will take this discussion with my stupid boss, or I will take this discussion with this woman at a bar who said something racist, or I'll take, you know, I'll do it now. And then realize that it's work, that political work is hard. It takes time and, and it'll make you exhausted, make you sad. So for me, being an activist is working. It's actively working to dismantle systems of power. And it's admitting that you can't do it all the time. And that's been very, very important to me in coming to terms with, you know, not everything I do is is feminist. Like it, it's not feminist that I put on makeup. Like I, it doesn't matter. But it's fine anyway. I think that's one of the important separations that we need to do now is saying that you know you can still be a feminist and doing something that is not actively feminist all the time. You don't have to do something sexist or racist or transphobic, but you can do something that's just a part of being in the world. So being an activist for me is saying okay. Now I do something feminist. <laughs> Deep breath. <laughs> but also I think being an activist for me is giving up on the easy ways out and choosing not to do what seems to be the initially easiest or most lucrative thing for myself, but seeing it in a bigger context. Can you give an example? Yeah, for example, I have decided to not receive any sort of sponsorships not to participate in any, you know, not receive any gifts from anyone to have on my Instagram, not be part of any sort of corporate machine with my person. And that has, you know, cost me a lot um, to not do that. But I don't want to use my platform to sell stuff. And that's a very, you know, concrete way you can do something feminist is not to contribute to increased consumption and not to contribute to people who are not rich or who don't have the ability to participate in consumption, not to have them feel bad by visiting your Instagram page. 
I, I, I do feel that I am surprised at how many, especially young, white, skinny, cis female feminists call themselves feminists while still, you know, selling Nike outfits and selling clothes and selling perfumes. And I just, I'm confused by it, I have to say. I guess it's fine. Like, you can do whatever you want. But I think you should ask yourself if that's the best leverage of your privilege in this world. Um, and I think that we have kind of these past couple of years created a cop out for ourselves by saying that things are empowering. So as long as something is empowering, it's somehow feminist. <laughs> and I think that we need to be able to criticize that and say, you know, not everything is feminist. It's just not feminist to sell a bikini. I'm sorry. It's like there's no <laughs> there's just no way around it. You can still do it. But please do admit that it serves like no political purpose at all, which is fine. But be honest. <laughs> Since we're in the topic of making money, I think it's a very pressing, but also a very little discussed question, especially when it comes to social change work. So in as much detail as you're comfortable with, how do you make a living as an activist? Ugh, I do talks. That's what I do. Um, I have mainly, these past two years, been living off of doing talks in schools. And that has, is a, quite an okay living. It's, it's, you know, you don't become a millionaire, but it's okay. And I have been fortunate enough to receive some grants as well for my work and for my writing, um, which has helped me and, of course, a terrific privilege as well. And then I write texts for anthologies and books and newspapers sometimes, and that pays a little as well, but it's by far, you know, 95% of the money I make is from doing talks at schools and traveling around and, and being an educator. When you do talks, you're also very independent. You know, I'm not uh, reliant on, you know, making a politician happy or a political party or a corporation or anything. I've been incredibly independent and it, it's a huge privilege. I think what is really not talked about often enough is how important gender roles are for understanding consent and are for young people's understanding of consent. And I think, you know, masculinity and how we talk about masculinity is extremely important in how we talk about sexuality. Because even, you know, even though we've had sex in the city and all these movements in how we talk about female sexuality, I think what we're really sorely lacking is nuancing and critique of male sexuality and how we understand that and what that means. Gender is basically the strongest prism that we see our sexuality through. And for young women, that means the right to say no, but it also means the right to say yes. And to say yes without being afraid. And for young men, that means the right to say yes, but it also means the right to say no. I think for a lot of young men, being constantly sexually available and desiring to have sex all the time is a part of their way of understanding what it means to be a man and what it means to be, you know, powerful. How are, should we be able to revolutionize femininity if we don't revolutionize masculinity as well? Because those two things, in a lot of people's understanding, supplement each other and are each other's opposites. And I think breaking down that opposition is so, so important if we want to lessen the amounts of violations and the suffering that comes from them.
listening to Meaningful, and thanks to Emma for sharing her story and her insights on being an activist in today's world. You can find all the resources we mentioned today, as well as more information about Emma's work in the show notes at Sophia Does Words, that's S-O-F-Y-A doeswords.com slash meaningful. If you like this episode please 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 take a moment to rate and review meaningful on one of your favorite podcast apps it will help more people discover meaningful and its guests and of course don't forget to subscribe to get all the future episodes straight to your device next week we're going back to rwanda where one incredible young woman has taken it upon herself to help her country fall in love with reading see you then <laughs>